All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. This is our season finale, uh, and we brought back uh, to this rants our curriculum experts, uh, John, Christine, and Jeremy, who I believe will talk be talking about curriculum and maybe possibly their favorite programming and stuff like that. Before we get started with that, Joe gets the boring stuff. Boring old Joe, here you go. So if you're catching this live and you wanna ask questions, this is a perfect one to ask questions for because there were tons of questions last time. So if you didn't get your question asked, answered the last time these guests were here, um, you can do that using the Q&A option. If you throw it in the chat, we're gonna miss it. Uh, so make sure that you put it in the Q&A. You can get any questions uh, for our panelists answered. If you're listening to this via the recorded podcast, well, Sorry, you can't ask any questions, at least to the panelists anyways. Uh, hopefully we can have them on for a volume three and you can catch them this time. If you missed them the first time, check it out. It's anywhere that you stream podcasts. If you want CEUs for this or any of our rants, you can purchase and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Just keep track of the opening and closing word because you will be asked that to get your certificate. And the opening word for this one is creative, creative. Thanks, Joe, for the boring stuff. That was you're welcome. Great. I need to figure out like how to dance that stuff or something, or like wrap it, make it make it to where it's a little bit more wrap fun it, to listen to. Wrap it, wrap it. Next time, maybe, maybe since Christine's volunteering, she can wrap it for us pre-recorded, and then you can just press the play button every every time. I'm like more it. of a hype girl, so I'm happy to hype you up as you do it. <laughs> There's that coffee kicking in. So, uh, Joe, do you want to lead us off in the, in the beginning of this? Sure. I mean, normally we give everyone an opportunity to introduce themselves, but you already did that uh, the last time you were all here. So if anyone is curious as to who you all are, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one. And it might help inform this discussion just a little bit because you all covered a whole lot of ground the last time we got together. And I think we ended up going over the time that we normally do just so we could get more questions in. So I just figured it'd be nice to start off with just a general, was there something, some topic around curriculum that you wanted to really get into last time that we just ran out of time to do it? And let's start with that. So we make sure that we get to cover those bases. I know that's really broad and general. And if you didn't listen to what you did last time, you, you probably might not think of, of something uh, or you wanna talk about something we've already talked about, Christine. Um, I didn't listen to it. So I'm going to go ahead and pass that question to John and Jeremy. If anyone ever needs like a personal torture for me, it's make me listen to my own voice. So I will admittedly say I don't remember what we talked about last time. So John or Jeremy, if there's anything you guys want to fill in. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Um, and you're right, the time did fly. It felt like we were all just sitting around at the pub, just chewing the fat and, and enjoying each other's company. And 
I know that the jumping off point before we left was Justin asking us to describe what we meant by domains. Because I, I think a lot of the things we talked about didn't really have technical definitions. And that was part of our conversation too, having kind of a common language in order to describe what it is that, that we were so passionate about. Um, I wouldn't mind like jumping in kind of where we left off as if we never left that pub that we were all sitting enjoying a beer with um, and maybe talk a little bit about domains. And then if people have questions, it would be interesting to bring some different thoughts and questions into the conversation, I guess. I love that. Um, do you, should we pick one domain first or, or give a broad overview of what we mean when we're talking about domains when it comes to curriculum? I get to handball the, the, the ball to Jeremy here because he was starting to talk about domains the last time we got let off. Um, and it's something that he and I spent a lot of time just discussing together as we were working on a, uh, a curriculum tool together, so. Sure. Um, so when we were talking about domains, I think at Autism Partnership, we were thinking about curriculum as a whole and what areas we work on. And so John and I and others were trying to figure out, well, let's have that common language and what domains do we do we mean when we talk about those things. And so uh, we came up with, you know, what we consider to be major domains. And of course, there's there's overlap to those things. Um, and they're certainly not mutually exclusive, uh, but we came up with the domains of behavior as a domain, learning how to learn skills. So those are any skills that we're trying to teach our clients in order to become independent learners, communication and language, a social domain, a play domain, kind of we call it a cognitive domain, um, which is a, a big almost catch-all it seems for deeper level cognition type of uh, curriculum, and then self-help. Uh, and those were kind of the domains we, we envisioned when we're working and setting up a curriculum. And those orders that I listed out on is kind of how we saw the importance for a lot of our clients where we'd at least start. So behavior domain was first because, you know, John and I both felt and others, I think too, that if behavior wasn't under control, not a lot of learning is happening. So we have to make sure behavior is under control. That doesn't mean that we would start there for every client because some clients have perfect behavior coming in and we don't have to worry about it. But that's where kind of we would start. Uh, and I guess before I hand it back off to John to talk maybe more about it, you know, one thing that just keeps coming back to me is just how important those first two domains, behavior and learning how to learn skills are. You know, as things are opening up in the, the world again, I've been able to go to some schools and just see how important those are because some of the students I go to see have those um, things under control. They're learning independently and their behavior's looking really good. And so they're able to get into deeper curriculum. And then there's the, the opposite's true too, where behavior is a problem. Um, there's aggression and self-interest behavior and elopement, or they don't know how to sit appropriately, so they're not independent learners and that's where we have to focus a lot of the time. So just uh, I just want to clarify when you when you're saying behavior, you're meaning challenging behavior or behavior that interferes with learning or aberrant behavior uh, is is the behavior domain that you're talking about. Yeah, I think when we were talking about it, that's the one domain where we're almost looking to decrease 
behaviors. So the behavior, I mean, getting rid of elopement, that's self-interest behavior, aggression, uh, and threatening, any of those type of tantrum behaviors. Uh, whereas all the other domains, we're looking to really increase skills. Um, and of course, we know that if we're decreasing, you know, aggression, we're looking to use a replacement behavior to increase another skill, but that's how we kind of overall viewed it. I think it was kind of a way for us to conceptualize. I mean, we kept coming back to what we wanted to establish as a bit of a common language. And we knew there would be different definitions for the domains and different thoughts on what should be in each of those domains. I mean, I think one of the, the longer conversations we had was whether we should call a domain play and leisure or separate play versus leisure, um, just trying to establish that they're both critical. And depending on the age, how do you conceptualize that? And then you know, incorporated into kind of an assessment tool as we're working with the kids and figuring out what curriculum and, or excuse me, which programs would best benefit them uh, where they were in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think Jeremy and I tried to, even though they're separate as far as the, the domains, they're so connected that it's almost like it's a run-on sentence. And um, as we're working on those two critical ones that Jeremy mentioned, the, the decreasing the behavioral um, representations, increasing the learning how to learn, we're also starting to branch into play and leisure or communication and language or socialization, uh, self-help. All those things have to be connected. I think that's been um, a foundational column in our framework um, from the beginning of trying to try and just conceptualize this for our own staff, let alone if it got out to other people as well. So I'm wondering if you guys want to explore one domain in particular right now and talk about it. You want the audience to uh, chime in and say which domains they might be interested in learning about it with curriculum. Well, I mean, if, if I you're going either, I'm sorry, Joe, go ahead. No, you're fine. I was going to say, if you're, so if you're catching this live, go ahead and use the Q&A option or the chat if there's one domain that we don't go into that you'd like us to spend some more time discussing. And I just wanted to say that I appreciate the discussion of the common language and you developed some common language so you both knew what you were talking about. Uh, so someone else might use different language when they're talking about these domains and that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that's the most effective way to talk about it wherever you are. Uh, so I think maybe when we dive into some of these domains a little bit, we, some specific examples might help because what might be, you know, play for one person uh, might be uh, social for another or like leisure. So I think examples might help. Uh, but we have some votes coming in here um, for domains. So I think we'll take the first one we get into. And then as it, it, if there's more domains that you want us to talk about, uh, keep on throwing them at us. Uh, the first one's learning how to learn. No one else unmuted their mic, so I guess I'll <laughs> find someone else, feel free to jump in. Uh, you know, overall, the learning how to learn domain, I think we kind of think about it in terms of what are skills that our clients need or your students need or that will make them independent learners. So things like sitting appropriately might be a place where you start because if a student is flopping all over the place and unable to sit, you're not going to get a lot of teaching done. Uh, being able to learn from prompts might be another learning how to learn skill, give back reinforcers. Those are just some basic ones that we think of, but as a whole, we're looking at any skill we can teach 
that will help them become independent learners because our end goal can't be that we're going to teach them everything they ever need to know. They need to be able to learn by themselves. And the quickest way we found to do that is to spend a lot of time actually to develop those learning how to learn skills as part of their repertoire so that way they can become independent learners. I think to build on top of that too. Oh, it worked out. Sorry, you kept yourself muted, John, so I win. Um, <laughs> Uh, to go on top of that, I, I, you know, uh, like Jeremy was saying, we want to reinforce the looking at appropriate relevant materials, scanning, being able to sustain attention with a number of distractions in the environment, any types of skills that they're going to need in order to learn in the most natural environment. Um, not only I think we, I want to emphasize that we are, we heavily emphasize this in, in early stages of intervention, but we're also consistently reinforcing and tackling and making sure we're addressing this throughout their intervention time. So seven years, it's always an ongoing target and an ongoing skill that we're working with. Because again, we can't teach every single label. We can't teach every single action and every single social skill. But what we can try our best to do is teach them the skills so that they can start to pick up things on their own. And that might mean make sure that we're doing ongoing maintenance checks of are they engaging in the right skills to be able to to, to keep learning. We want them to hopefully find what they're learning reinforcing so they continue to want to learn as well. Um, so I think, don't forget, don't drop this in terms of your curriculum and programs just because they're in year two of intervention. This is an ongoing thing that we're consistently, it might look a little bit different. It might look a little bit more complex. Um, we might be working on little nuances in terms of how you know they're, they're doing these skills, but it's ongoing target for, for everyone we work with. Yeah, I, I mean, the word evolution just kept popping into my head as I was listening to Christine. It's, it's not like this domain is something that you finish and you check the boxes and then you put it away. It's something that grows as the child grows because like Christine said, as the child develops these learning how to learn skills, well, developmentally, there's more of those skills to learn as you move forward. And the only thing I was thinking about as I was listening to Jeremy and Christine is last year was just crazy. It was insane. And if any of you had a chance to sit in with teachers as they absolutely struggled for all the right reasons to try and teach their kids remotely, I think for me, it brought home the importance of learning how to learn. Um, we, some of the classrooms we spend time in, if we've gone in and we've worked with the teachers and the staff and there's a really nice collaborative relationship and the kids are benefiting and we're focused on behaviors and learning how to learn and they start to see the benefits of those in the classroom where the kids are picking up some of the language or some of the social appropriateness or the, the routine as the class unfolds, all that got wiped out with COVID. If those kids were now at home having to tune in like we're all tuning in here to a Zoom meeting we all had to go through that learning process. We all had to go through learning how to learn, not only how to present ourselves and which button did what and how do you get that screen that's so cool that Jeremy's got, but how to interact and how to learn. And so going back to learning how to learn to teach sustained attention, to teach attention to who's speaking, to be able to receive information from a different platform, it just highlights how important that that domain itself is throughout our lives. And it was really fascinating to watch the kids start to, to pick up on it as the teachers realized or as the, the, the SPTAs realized 
oh my God, we got to go back and just make sure that they're paying attention to me, that they're hearing me, that they're comprehending all that stuff they're doing in the classroom. We kind of have to go back and re-examine a little bit. So I think one thing that both of you, or all, all of you, have brought up is attending. And I would love you guys to have a little discussion of what the difference between attending and eye contact is in terms of teaching eye contact is in terms of learning how to learn and then some of the creative ways that you have worked on increasing attending um, as you've worked with the learners that you've worked with the skill on. I guess I'll start in terms of speaking of definitions of attention versus eye contact. Um, I think when we think of attention, it's are they paying attention to the relevant, again, what's relevant to what we're talking about? So that might be the instructor, that might be the materials they're working with. Look, even if let's say I'm working in a classroom where I'm working one-on-one -on -one and someone comes in with a giant group of balloons, you know, the fact that they're turning and looking at that, I still think they're attending because that's something interesting and different that happened in their environment, right? And so um, I think that when we think about attending, are they paying attention to the things that they need to, to be successful in life, right? So we don't want them to miss out on those social opportunities of seeing a novel thing in the environment occur, right? That's important. Um, I think it's also just as important for them to check back in and see, hey, can I go check that out? Or, you know, uh, can they, maybe it's not something big. Maybe it's a teacher that, uh, you know, walks in and out of the classroom all day. I'm fine with them looking at the door to see who it is, but we know they're going to come back in. So they need to come back and pay attention to me. Understanding the hierarchy, almost importance of, you know, what's going on in their environment as well. So when we think about attention, again, can they um, focus in on what is important and focusing in on the right things, paying attention to the right things, right? Like the, the salient information in terms of the instructions, the materials that are present, what is, you know, we could have a classroom with a hundred different poster boards and that's okay. Are they paying attention to the same one the entire class is paying attention to? Um, so I think that's the major difference there. Um, when we think about eye contact, of course, you know, eye contact is important, but why is it important? What is it about eye contact that we need to learn? Well, when I see that, you know, I'm talking to someone, I know that they're listening and talking to me, but I'm not gonna hold eye contact for the next two hours straight because that's just, first of all, socially not appropriate. <laughs> um, but you, you tend to make eye contact to make sure someone else is listening to you. I'm also gonna make eye contact to see where the other person is looking. So I think we need to understand why are we teaching these behaviors in the first place? Because if we understand why and what's the function of you know, these behaviors, we're gonna be able to teach them the other skills that come along with it. So I think don't teach things for the sake of teaching them, but understand why we might teach eye contact, why we might teach you know, attention to whatever, you know, the appropriate speaker. Um, and that way, when we're embedding it into our programs, it, it's gonna serve them a, a, a function that is going to meet the right contingencies and ideally they get to generalize that skill in the future um, but if anyone else has better clarification <laughs> clarification that'd be great but i know you two are much better in terms of the actual programming so i wanted to save that for you guys <laughs> definitely not better but I, I think just going off on that uh first of all i put eye contact under more like social or communication domain as opposed to a learning how to learn skill uh, and so whereas attending i would put it under, under learning how to learn um, in that domain. But, you know, as Christine said, I'd also include there's auditory and visual attending. So 
you know, there, you gotta be tackling both. And I, too often times I hear, well, he's a very good visual, he's great visually attending. So they just use that and they don't work on auditory attending at all or vice versa. Like he can pay attention when he doesn't look. Well, you know, I believe you've got to work on both because we need to, both of those skills to be strong because they might become an, go into an environment where a teacher an instructor, whoever is only using visual or is only using auditory and they need to be able to attend to either. So that's why I think we've developed a lot of uh, programs as part of our curriculum to get into both auditory and visual attending that maybe John wants to go over some of that creative uh, stuff that Justin had mentioned. I, you guys pretty much summed it up for me. I think Justin, where we run into a problem is when we, when the mistake is made that because somebody's not looking, they're not paying attention. And I hear all the time, oh, you're not looking or you're not paying attention. And I think that that's just not doing what Christine mentioned, which is, is really coming to an understanding of what looking is versus what attending is, having a definition for both, whether it's auditory or visual. Um, and, and then asking why is it important for this child? I'm fine with a kid who, when they hear an instruction, they look down at what they're supposed to do. And if I'm still talking and they're looking at that piece of paper, trying to figure it out and reconcile it, I'm not going to ding them for not looking at me as I'm talking. So I think that's kind of the only thing that I would add on there is just be really cognizant of, of what it is you're expecting from the child. And sometimes when the kid isn't looking, that's not a bad thing. They could be using their auditory attending to figure out what they need to do or to listen. I think of, um, you know, Christine can actually talk a lot more about this. She's got the youngest child here between she and I anyway. Um, Joint attending is something that a lot of kids are just born with. And when you see it, you realize how much of a deficit it is for the kids that we sometimes work with. They just know to look around. They just know to absorb information. They just are sponges taking in what their environment is providing for them. And I think sometimes we have to recognize that as a deficit and go back and teach the importance of looking around. Like she said, if somebody walks in dressed up as a clown or brings a bunch of and balloons into a room, they should look up and notice that's different. That's different. And how else is everybody else reacting to it? That's attending. That's very much a, a skill, a pivotal skill. And we can talk about definitions there as far as pivotal skills, but I think it's a critical skill for our kids to be learning. So we focus a lot on, on sustained attention, being able to listen and look and absorb and then do something with that information. It's not okay just that they listen to one word or two word instructions and then do something. That doesn't feel like we're building on a skill set there. Um, and I think that Jeremy's right. We do try to create programming around how do we increase a kid who relies a lot on visual attending to help them with auditory attending and vice versa. And then how do they combine those two things to be a better engaged person with their learning environment? And to maybe get into I'll, I'll do one visual program and one auditory program. Um, there's a lot in the, you know, the books that we have at Autism Partnership and the social skills groups book, we have some different attention programs and it's kind of hard to do it in a, uh, not a visual medium, like a podcast, but one would be like secret word, which would be an auditory attending program where we pick a word that's kind of magic. And so um, let's take the word magic, for example, and they have to do some action uh, every time they hear the word. So you might start very simply, like maybe they have to clap their hands. So 
I might say elephant, grape, magic. And when they hear magic, they clap their hands and that lets us know that they're paying attention. And then as time goes on, it gets more complex where we're saying sentences and then all the way to maybe you have a secret word throughout the day where they come into the morning session, you tell them the word and the word only happens once uh, at the end. So they're really having to, um, to pay attention auditorily. Then for a visual one, I'll take one that's kind of social in nature too, which we do like what we call pop quizzes, where we might take a student into a room pre-COVID and walk them around the room and then walk out and give them a pop quiz and say like, what kind of backpack was your friend Sam wearing today? And so to see if they're queuing into some visual things that um, might be important socially as well. I, I love that you're discussing breaking it up in terms of, you know, auditory and, and visual, because I don't think people really have that conversation, uh, uh, at least that I haven't been part of outside of, you know, my small little bubbles. Uh, and it's such a great point. And it makes me think about what John said with the change in the, the context that lots of our students had been in this last year, or maybe still are in, you know, this year as well. Uh, attending in different contexts looks very different. And I think the point that you all made was it's attending within context and the context really matters. You know, when you're a college student and you're listening to a lecture, you might not look at the professor at all. You're looking down and taking notes. That doesn't mean that you're not attending you're actively attending so like attending also requires a response from the learner it's not just this random stimuli that's going on in the environment and i think you all made a great point about that and i think sometimes attending and eye contact is worked on in these decontextualized settings and that's where these reputations about you know eye contact is bad we shouldn't be doing it blah 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 um, rather than looking at the context in which we're working on these things like attending and eye contact and taking in cultural variables as well um, and different settings. I think it, it's it's so important. So I appreciate you making that point and providing some examples of how you would teach it. I'm gonna add just a little bit there too, is and also age appropriateness too, right? So also I like to like observe different, of course, you know, um, what listening might look very different, like you said, for a three-year-old might really have to stop and look and, and see what's going on versus some other kids can multitask as they get older. They're a little bit better at being able to do something else while listening at the same time. So I think I would incorporate in terms of what are their multi- what is it called? Multitasking skills. What are, you know, how age appropriate is the attending behavior as well, right? So I think paying attention to those types of those, to those types of things. Um, one thing I'm gonna like, again, add also to the, the secret word is I think forgetting to like, I, I love the program of secret word. They have to like do an action um, whenever they hear the magic word. And I think people remembering too, that they should be reinforcing for not doing the secret action. They are paying attention by not clapping. And so I think a lot of times people forget that, again, attention looks different. Not only should they be responding, but they're responding differently. My response of my hands being back and waiting is appropriate and attention because I am not delivering that target response or that target word. So I think highlighting and remembering when we are doing these programs, what should it look like? Um, and as we start to develop you know, and make it progressively more difficult. If we're forgetting the, the non-response or what they should be doing while they're waiting, we could be losing very critical um, opportunities to be reinforcing attentive behaviors, right? The, those are things that show they are paying attention as well. So, okay, I'm done. <laughs> one, one last thing before maybe we jump on. <laughs> so you guys, uh, but one thing I just did want to say and that I feel like has come up too is 
why the reason why they might be attend not attending our some of our clients. And so sometimes it might be because they don't have the skill set. So we really need to get in there and teach those learning how to learn skills to build up that skill set. Sometimes it could be because it's too hard in that moment to attend. And the example I give all the time is my wife's a French speaker, it's her first language. When we go to visit her family around the dinner table, it's all French. I speak almost no French. And my attention goes really quickly because I start thinking about other things because I have nothing to contribute. And sometimes I think for some of our students, it's the same way. If we're going at too high a level, it would be natural in a way to stop attending and start thinking of something else. So that's not the time to give the feedback of you're not paying attention. It's why aren't they paying attention? Let's break that part down too. We, yeah. we, had, a, we had a guest on uh, a few weeks ago whose husband, uh, I believe speaks Portuguese and she, she learned Portuguese so that she could talk at the dinner table and be better paying attention, just, just so you know. That sounds like a dig, Jeremy. <laughs> Slowly. Uh, but but to move on um, <laughs> yeah to move on wait um, move on i just want to say christine that's exactly what you talked about last time you said discrimination is one of your favorite programs and so that's kind of a nice illustration of discriminating behaviors and then noticing the whole package not just the one thing that you should be focused on and jeremy brings up the point that we spent a lot of time talking about last time you got to assess you got to figure out why a behavior is or isn't happening and then what's the function and how do we go about addressing it and how does it fit within that context? So everything that we talk about today, as far as favorite programs or domains or whatever questions, it's all couched within that critical assessment piece. At least so we, have a, we have a question from our audience and I wanna reinforce question asking. Um, so the question is frustration tolerance, would that be in its own domain? Uh, they, they have separated it from learning how to learn skills uh, based on the context. To uh, Go ahead, Christine. You unmuted first. Oh, I, I guess what I was going to say is I think frustration tolerance hits a few different domains because I think, um, you know, when we think of frustration tolerance, are we thinking about the proactive? Are we talking about the reactive situation? So I think it's it, it embeds a bit of the behavior domain. I think it embeds um, some of the learning how to learn domain. I think it embeds the language and communication domain. I think it all it all kind of depends. Uh, so. Uh, I don't know if I would necessarily separate it as its own. You got you, Jeremy and John, you should correct me if I'm wrong, but I probably would separate it because I think that all of those other domains will tackle on frustration tolerance. But go ahead, Jeremy, your turn. Yeah, I, Popcorn I, I, Jeremy. <laughs> um, I, I certainly would put it more towards the behavioral domain. I think so many skills overlap. Um, and that was one of the things when we were designing programs and say, well, which domain does this go in? It's like, oh, well, this fits the social and it fits the communication and it fits the learning. It fits so many. I think we tend to put it under the behavior domain because it just, you know, being able to develop coping skills should hopefully get rid of some aberrant behaviors, uh, but it certainly fits in learning how to learn domain too. And it's really something that we should all be working on throughout our whole lives is being able to tolerate things that frustrate us in a more appropriate way, um, not just for our students, but develop coping strategies that are successful for that. Yeah, I'd agree with Jeremy. I think if he and I were sitting in separate rooms watching somebody implement that program, 
and we were having to write down which domain it was in, I think the main one for me would be behavior. It's, re it's reducing that expressiveness that sometimes is inappropriate. I love the question. And I think it's a fascinating topic because it, it hits on awkward and respondent. And I think that the programming that we try to do around frustration, frustration tolerance and coping is critical to our kids. Um, I think we all would benefit by practicing more of it ourselves, like Jeremy said. And um, I think for our kids, as they're learning how to handle stress, as they're learning how to handle uh, different dynamics, teaching relationships, other ways of learning, as they're learning how to communicate and talk, they need to be able to express themselves. And this is just a really nice way of thinking of keeping things on a level where they can continue to learn and not be frustrated and not be stressed and not be anxious and learn how to take care of themselves. And so some of the other domains would start to spill into um, a little bit of self-promotion, um, a little bit of communication. But I, I think primarily as we're starting these programs with these, with these clients, it's, it's in the behavior domain to reduce that expressiveness that sometimes is difficult to sit through. And I think as they start, you know, and again, as we start intervention and we're able to reduce more of those interfering, you know, reactions that, you know, have that the reason we have to introduce frustration tolerance, ideally we get to a place where we get to start working on, again, like you were saying, like language replacement, can they articulate something in a way that can change their environment in a way that's more desirable for them. At the same time, let's also work on cognitive and problem solving. Hey, someone took my toy. I am very, very mad. Can we think of up some other solutions that are more appropriate so that they can, you know, respond accordingly? So um, you can see almost on, in that progression of spectrum in terms of where we are, might start, definitely hammering in more of that behavior, learning how to learn, and then ideally gets to more complex of, of problem solving, um, communication, and all of that. Um, so. I think that's where you could see it spills into, into everything. Because ideally we're, we're, we're addressing things proactively. If we can see things that tend to frustrate our students when they're younger, why wouldn't we teach them a replacement skill as they get older before they interact or encounter those, those uh, situations when they get older, right? We wanna hopefully develop those problem solving skills to prevent bigger behaviors happening in the future. Absolutely, I, it's, I always, you know, when someone says, uh, they're working on frustration tolerance. I always say that, okay, that's one half of the coin is getting them to be able to tolerate those things. What's the other half? What do we teach them to do with it? Um, because it can't just be tolerate, 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 tolerate. It has to be tolerate and. Um, and so I always ask that kind of question. I, I'm loving this conversation. And I think to, to bring it back to what John and Jeremy said earlier on about how you've classified domains is it's, it's really just useful for you. So does frustration tolerance fit into one domain? Well, whatever is most, most beneficial and useful for you, but really it's how does it fit in what I would think would be the programming for the client um, is more important than what domain am I going to just put this program into. Uh, it's, to me, it goes back to that common vocabulary. So what have you established is going to be the most useful for you when you're talking about this to other people that you work with? Uh, but, and you may disagree with what I just said, and that's cool. That gives you something to talk about. But I'm also curious, what are some methods um, that you've come into contact with or that, that you found have been beneficial for teaching frustration tolerance? 
Uh, and I know it's tough because we're not in this in a visual medium, like Jeremy said. Uh, and we should, I'll give the disclaimer that um, anything that you talk about shouldn't be picked up and then used for any specific client. It should be individualized and you should analyze. But I think it might be useful to just talk about what are some of the methods that you found successful um, as, as generally as you want to talk about it. Well, because I talked about the not just frustrating part, I'll let someone else do that piece. For me, when I'm talking thinking about, let's say, coping strategies, one thing I found to be successful is trying a lot of them at first. I think too often we can just be like, all right, we're going to use deep breaths and we just go with that. But, you know, if we have a client who maybe isn't vocal and can't express that they don't want to, it's not effective for them, then we're kind of giving them tools that they might not use. Of course, if we have a very vocal verbal client, we might give them their options like, hey, let's practice some of these things, which sound good to you. Um, but for students that don't have that ability, I, I found it really helpful to try a bunch of them, deep breaths, taking break, progressive muscle relaxation, uh, guided imagery, any of those things, and then see which one they kind of gravitate towards, which one's most effective for them, and then go down that path. And so sometimes when teaching, I feel like we can cut off too many paths early on instead of opening up um, and then going from there. I think one of the, the programs that I like, and I don't have terminology for this type of program, but it's like an umbrella program. So once you go through the process of, of let's say we're talking about stress management or frustration tolerance, once you go through the pro progress, the, the process of assessing what those triggers are, what uh, assessing you know the, the hierarchy, and you come up with four or five that you're going to expose and teach, um, there's a program that, that we call by its, um, whatever, when you use the letters, what's that called? Um, not a euphemism, but it's the STAR program. So stop, think, act, and then review. So once they've got this, this kind of understanding of what are my triggers and how could I respond to them, well, then what do I do about it? So I always find one of the most fascinating things to do is, is Christine's discrimination, just stopping. Before you react, just stop for a second, catch your breath. Maybe use a little bit of the, the coping strategies that Jeremy described, take a deep breath or close your eyes for a second. Think, what are some of your alternatives that you've learned that you can use rather than having a tantrum or folding up inside of yourself? Um, act upon those, those teachings and then review and see if it worked or not. It's just kind of an ongoing process of how you take on challenges as they present themselves. And I think that's one of the ones that as a child progresses, depending on the age, of course, and where they are in their programming, it's kind of nice to move into more of an umbrella program where you can put a bunch of the pieces together and they can communicate what it is they need and they can practice it. And then you can proactively practice those things again and set up opportunities to role play. Hey, let's try that again. Let's see how you respond. And I'm gonna see if I can catch you and surprise you and get them to go through the process. And then they're more independent. They're able to use that type of teaching and then utilize it themselves. So that's one of the programs that I kind of like to use that is kind of a branching program, an umbrella program. Mm -hmm. I don't know, something to talk about. One thing I just wanted, and then I'll, sorry, Christine, I just wanted to say before I forgot and then I felt like I went home or stayed home, I guess, and uh, said that I should have said that is when I'm thinking about coping strategies, one thing I just have to say is I want coping strategies that can travel. And by that, I mean, they can take it every, anywhere with them. So I've been in areas where it's like, well, he loves to calm down using a hundred piece puzzle. And I say, okay, well, what if he's in an airplane? 
so it's like, I want any coping strategy we're going to teach that can go with them everywhere that they can access in any environment. I just had to get that out there. So a magnetic puzzle. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think it, like they always said it individualized and it depends on the student you're working with, right? Um, another way I like to teach frustration tolerance is I'm going to go back to my discrimination training. Can they discriminate things that are frustrating versus things that are not frustrating? Are they able to like, you know, even sorting cards, like hearing the word no makes me mad. Going to the beach makes me happy. Can we just have them discriminate different types of events that may result in, you know, different emotions, right? Um, I then like to pair my observable observable behaviors with where I think they are in terms of their spectrum of, of frustration or anger. So when I start to, let's see, hear some whining or they're starting to clench their fists, I say, yeah, I can hear you whining. You're clenching your fists. You seem upset, right? And we're starting to hopefully help them identify here are the behaviors associated with different parts of where you might be in terms of your escalation cycle. When they're kicking, they're hitting, they're destroying property, they're probably pretty pissed off, right? So they're, they're kind of on that end of, of their frustration. Um, and so once we're better able to identify the behaviors that kind of go along with where they might be, in terms of the spectrum of frustration, we're ideally teaching them, you know, can they start to identify where they might need to use that skill, you know, that uh, coping strategy. So in, in practice, before we're in that situation, we might do just um, a lot of practice of, okay, we're gonna practice things that make you upset. I wanna see you practice a coping strategy, right? And I might say, let's go get ice cream. They should be happy, right? Let's go play video games. They should be fine. And I say, hey, it's not, you know, we, we it's not your choice right now. I have to pick the next activity. Ideally, we might in the beginning prompt them to go or prompt them to grab their stress ball or whatever, you know, we have decided is their appropriate coping strategy. So ideally, they're starting to pair here are frustrating things and here are things that I can do instead. Um, and that has been successful for me in the past where when we did come up with an actual antecedent that came up, they immediately started to kind of do their, their deep, for that particular student, deep breaths was effective. Um, so I said, you know what, we can't go to, we can't go to the beach right now. Like, it's just not gonna happen. And immediately she went, just because we practiced it so, so many times um, and her understanding when to use it, when to not. Um, re again, reinforcing when I say, let's go play something fun that you wanna do, they didn't take a deep breath and said, yeah, yeah, let's just go play. That is something fun, something you like to do. Um, I just threw out a, a bunch of different ways to practice it. But again, that's because it depends on the student and depends on where they are in their learning. How much do they understand? Like Jeremy said, there's some kids that we can really talk through a lot of things. We can talk through problem solving. We can discuss you know, the outcomes of, of different types of responses. Whereas with some other learners, we just can't do that. So we might have to be a little bit more structured in terms of how we're introducing coping strategies, introducing antecedents and systematically um, working on them developing the coping strategies to replace the other behaviors. And then just, of course, I want to also throw out there with any student we're working on these type of skills with, are the behaviors they're showing when they're frustrated, are the respondent or operant? And we always need to be thinking that way too. I think the other thing that, that we all think about is, is this is, it's, it's complex. You know, it's, we're talking about um, programming and curriculum. But Christine is starting to bring us into the teaching and having to be effective with the teaching, but also the individualization. 
and Joe, what you said as a warning at the beginning, it's not just that we're suggesting go out and do these things, but we're talking about examples of things that we've used through this process that we've found to be effective based on the students, um, based on their desire to participate in this therapy, by the way. Um, oops, sorry about that. Um, so anyway, I, I, yeah, just another, uh, let's throw in that caveat. Yeah, sorry, one more little thing. I think we forget that it's okay to be upset. There's so many times I've seen people give feedback, you you know what, you look mad. And it's like, they have a right to be and it's okay to be upset and it shouldn't be punished, right? I think that um, understanding which behaviors are not okay, it's okay for people to get mad, it's okay to be sad but you can't destroy the room, right? There, there's something else we've got to do. Um, but it, I, th I think sometimes people go to the, or to the side of they just always need to be calm in the presence of antecedents. They always have to be okay. And that's just not fair. Uh, so remembering that emotions are okay. <laughs> it's okay um, to, to express those things. I'm so glad you said that and I 100% agree. And the last thing I'll say on it before I keep my mouth shut on the topic is I just wanted to say one, I wanted to put out one mistake I commonly see is because Joe had asked like what has been effective. I think one mistake I commonly see in this area is they have a coping strategy they're teaching and they expect them to use it too soon. So they're like at a level 10 of upset and they're trying to prompt, you know, a deep breath before they've really learned it in isolation. Uh, and then we're pairing that deep breath with that feeling of being a level 10 upset. I don't wanna prompt students to use their coping strategies when they're even minorly upset until they can show me they can do it in isolation without the presence of any triggers. One more thing. <laughs> okay, clearly this is a very passionate thing for us because I think this is so important. We, we've all faced this so much with so many clients and I think it is a sensitive thing to teach. And I think that's why we have all these uh-ohs or you know, be mindful and, and all that is um, one thing too is the instruction of engaging in the coping strategy as opposed to allowing the antecedent and self to be the stimulus that triggers the coping strategy. So I think a one big mistake I always see is like, oh, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. But now it's more under the control of the instruction as opposed to understanding that this is the situation under which I should be taking a deep breath. And that calming is, is gonna, um, you know, hopefully result in a reinforcing consequence. So, um, Anyway, I had to add that last thing. Apparently there's a lot of don'ts, <laughs> a lot of be careful. Uh, so I think just be mindful It's not, it's, it's not, I think frustration tolerance is such an important program and there's so many things to think about. You can't just teach like, you know, run it like a program, like, okay, check the box, frustration tolerance, check the box, coping strategies. You've got to really find the right moments to teach these skills, right? They've got to be calm in the beginning. They've got to be receptive to learning. And so I think we're passionate about this because we think it's, it's vital to, for progress all around for the individuals. Okay. I promise um, I'm done now. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, sitting back and listening, it's, it's so nice to hear um, what you guys are doing and how you've, and how you've addressed it and how supportive it is to learn, how clinically sensitive it is and humane and compassionate. That's the work that you guys have really been doing for years and years. So um, it's just really good to hear that. 
Um, I do, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because we have another question from our audience and we encourage our audience to ask questions. I bet you, given the last one, this will probably be the last question of the day. Um, but the question is, John, you mentioned pivotal skills. Would love to learn, are those highlighted in some ways throughout the curriculum? So I guess, what does uh, pivotal skills mean and how are they highlighted through the curriculum? Yeah, I, I apologize. I knew the second those two words escaped my lips, I should probably think of a different terminology because it, it holds different contexts for different people. Look, I just think that they're critical skills. I think that for each kid, there's a specific set of skills that if we really hone in on increasing those skills, that it's what we talked about, how you can kind of move on through learning how to learn, they can then blossom themselves. We don't have to keep teaching the same things. Um, I think sustained attention is an incredibly important. Joint attention is incredibly important. Um, the ability to comprehend language, if that's the modality that we're using to teach, is incredibly important. Those are critical skills. Um, social skills. I think for each domain, you could name a bunch that are, that are just main objective that you want to make sure that if you hit that hard enough, the other objectives kind of fall into place. I guess that would be my unofficial definition of, of critical skill. Let's call it critical skills. I don't want to get in trouble for pivotal skills because I know that's kind yeah. of modern history. I don't know. Maybe one thing too, um, John, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think of sometimes you have a student where, you know, let's you could have 10 programs uh, targeting 10 different things, or you could have one program that targets like five of them. Um, and so you're getting more bang for your buck, so to speak. Uh, and so you can take, you know, four other programs out and not be uh, spending as much time with that. And I think that's one of those critical skills. And it's gonna be different for each student um, and their their needs and their skill level and what you're trying to accomplish. But I always rather have, you know, one program that targets many things than a lot of programs that target one thing. And I'll give some examples maybe of programs that might do that. Again, join attention is a skill that we're going to work on because that's going to open them up to a lot more opportunities again to learn on their own right or question asking allowing a student to say i don't know what is it is a really big program for us because we again we can't teach them everything i don't know the label of everything in the world right but i have the skills to figure that out and so can we teach that type of skill um, for the students um, observational learning Right, and then discriminations within that. Who do I know who to follow, right? Who should I be um, imitating versus who should I not be imitating? So I think thinking about, um, like they said, what's one skill I could teach that can open them up to um, ideally teaching multiple programs. You know, you don't have to do tw 20 programs to teach different expressive labels and receptive labels, but if I teach this skill, I can address all of those things. If I could teach them joint attention, I could teach, you know, they can start to learn all of these other things. So I probably mentioned those types of programs specifically I can think of that go in the realm of what we're talking about. I think, you know, and you might not consider this a, a critical skill, but it, for a lot of our kids, just environmental awareness, which is similar to what Christine's talking about, like the ability to navigate your environment, the ability to navigate not just the therapy room, because I think that's where beginning and end of therapy for a lot of people, that's where it stops and it starts and stops. But if you can take that knowledge and now navigate into another part of the office, towards the bathroom, towards the front desk, towards the kitchen if there's a kitchen in your office, towards a leisure area, now out the front door and be able to navigate the street, 
be able to environmentally be aware of what your surroundings are. That's the type of skill that I would want to teach and expand as quickly as possible so that then they can be much more available to any of the learning that happens to them outside of our office doors. Um, I think that's a critical skill. And we teach it. I think Jeremy's right. There's probably, you could probably hit that target and with as many programs as you need it. It doesn't have to be environmental awareness. It can be um, being able to match the name of a object like a toilet and know to go to the bathroom to find the toilet. To be able to match where do I find uh, my favorite red apples in the store, look up and find the aisle where the apples are. So there's matching involved. Yes, I got my matching in. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's an example of a skill that, that we would want to promote as an objective so that the learning can happen no matter where they are. And ideally, when we start to do those types of programs, like John was saying, let's make it relevant for the student. Why can't we introduce matching in a way that makes sense for them? Why don't we get matching like, great, let's match these cards. Super fun, right? Well, that leads to Zingo. Okay, now let's go play um, another game that might, memory might be an actual game that involves matching cards. Then you said, let's play store. Let's match my grocery list with the items that are in our play store, right? Or we're, we're, we're at school. Um, let's match the art projects that we're making. So I think thinking about being creative of um, how are we gonna do, of course we wanna teach the skill of matching, but how will it also make sense and be beneficial for the student. We want them to also understand and, and kind of contact those natural consequences for matching appropriately. I think what you're talking about, Christine, is something that all good curriculum should be doing is thinking about generalization from the start. It's like, how is this gonna generalize in the end? And if you can not, it shouldn't be the last phase of the program necessarily where it's like, now generalize, it should be thought about throughout the entire teaching of curriculum. What can we teach this kid that is going to keep opening doors for the rest of their lives? That's the critical skill that we need to be looking at for each of those kids. I felt like that was a great, great like closing tagline. That's why there was silence. No one, just end it there. Sorry, oh. no more questions. <laughs> no over it. That'd be lovely. exactly. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, that was the last question from the audience. So <laughs> we are no in a position it. that we, we, we could do that. We can, we can. Uh, well, and I, I love the points that you were all making um, and, you know, call them pivotal skills, call them behavioral tests, call them critical skills, um, call them whatever you want, as long as they're setting up for success. Like you said, John, uh, I won't try to say it better because that was, that was a wonderful mic drop moment. Yep. There you go. <laughs> He but I pretended will. to drop the mic for those that can't see the video. <laughs> and for the old people like me in the audience that don't know what mic drops are. <laughs> Yet you did it. Yet you did it. Uh, well, I want to thank you all for coming on again. And as this conversation unfolded, it made me think we should have just had you come on to now cover this domain um, just for this entire hour, because it feels like that's kind of what we did with learning how to learn. So maybe the next time you come on, we can make it specific to a domain so, uh, we can get more in depth in some of those areas. Anytime. I would love that. But I think the one great thing is if you sign up for the APFC library, there's going to be C CU events that Christine, Jeremy, and John are going to be putting on about different curriculum. 
So although they did a wonderful job today describing different programs and how you would teach different programs, you can actually see it for a low, low price of $9.99 per month. Are you out of your mind? Yeah, we must be because we are lower than I think any other uh, places that you can get CEUs. So I'd highly encourage that because you can actually see this curriculum live and then you can hopefully use it as guidelines and adapt it to the needs of your own clients. Additionally, as I'm gonna do my uh, shameless plug for our product, there's other really neat opportunities. Uh, last week, for example, we had our first ever Ask an Expert uh, hosted by our one and only Dr. Christine Milne. And uh, she had on Andy Bonding. So we got to spend an hour where we got to ask Andy anything from uh, pecs to Buddhism and had a lovely discussion. So this CEU library, I would recommend everyone sign up uh, so, so you can be part of these events. Um, and so- Where do you go for that, Justin? That's a, that's a boring joke question. Yeah, you go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org. Uh, you can find all of that there, including um, these episodes, if you want to listen through your web browser instead of through you know, a podcast streaming service. So that will end, uh, I will say the ending and then Joe will give the keyword to end it. That will end Rants with Justin and Joe this season. Uh, we will be coming back uh, in late, June, but we are going to be doing a different format. Uh, you know, when we started this, it was uh, the beginning of COVID and Joe and I needed to see each other frequently. So we did this every other week, but now with things looking on the right trend, at least here in California, we uh, have got swamped once again with other responsibilities, research and stuff, training and stuff like that. So we will be going to a once a month format uh, starting in June. So we won't be doing a rants for a few weeks. Uh, but once again, if you're a CU Library subscriber, there are events until we come back. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to try to make a change in time, knowing that more and more people are going to be in places where they couldn't do participate in something like this. So try to make it more accommodating for everyone else. But I know everyone's listening for that closing keyword so they can get CEUs for this. And that closing keyword is innovative innovative. And remember, if you want CEUs for this or any rants, you can purchase or download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. And that will do it for Rants with Justin and Joe.